first messages I tried to bring here, Uncle, October sometimes, Hebrews chapter 12, the marching design, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that we're not come to Mount Sinai, the mountain you might be touched, burned with fire and blackness, darkness, tempest, Hebrews 12, 18. But he says in verse 22, ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See then that you refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not and refuse him that spake on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And let this and this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of those things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So, the contrast there in the passage, the mount uh, where the law was given to Moses, given to Israel through Moses, Mount Sinai, with Mount Zion, of course, which is where Jerusalem uh, physically is situated, but also is a symbol of uh, the kingdom of God throughout the ages and even into eternity. And he says in a present tense verb indicating the continuing action that you are coming to that mountain. And I believe he speaks this to all the new covenant children of God as they are drawing from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue, drawing toward that one central location, which is not a physical location, but it is the spiritual throne of God. And as we draw closer to it, the necessary side effect is that we will draw closer to each other. Sometimes in seeking to accomplish uh, unity among Christians, uh, people uh, focus entirely on the horizontal, entirely on issues between one another, among brethren or among a family or among even within a congregation. And that has its place, but we must realize that the, the, the highest purpose, the most important thing is the one that John the Apostle refers to in the first chapter of his first epistle, 1 John chapter 1, where he says that truly our fellowship, verse 3, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's the basis of all true spiritual fellowship is the kinship we have in Christ. And the closer we get to the Lord Jesus Christ, the closer we will be to one another. And uh, that's a, a wonderful uh, obvious but important spiritual lesson that I try to remind myself of frequently. Uh, also in 1 John, is the text that I really intended to try to speak to you about today, is the first verse of 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that we, when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. So, 
uh, a profound statement of the basis of our hope and faith uh, as the love of God through Jesus Christ. And of course, the epistle, first epistle of John has even been referred to as the love letter, the letter of love, uh, because the love of God is such a prominent theme in that book. But, you know, love uh, in its various forms and meanings is um, a cheap commodity nowadays. Uh, as far back as, uh, I guess, the 1960s, I think it was the Beatles were saying, all you need is love, love, love is all you need. And since that time, even earlier than that time, uh, the vast majority of popular culture, music, uh, literature, films have, have uh, harped on a theme of love, which to a large degree is inconsistent with the Bible teaching about divine love. The kind of love that the world extols today is a love that you can fall into, and the unfortunate correlator to that is if you can fall into it, you can easily, just as easily fall out of it. But the love that the, the scriptures speak about is a love that endures forever, and a love that sometimes even leads to painful confrontation, a love that draws us to repentance, a love that actually causes a change in the heart of the recipient of that love. And so I wanted this morning, this afternoon, sorry, to look at a few of the characteristics of God's love. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. First, I want to note that the love of God in Christ is truly an unconditional love. Then we'll be back to the Epistle of Romans, Romans chapter 5, where Paul the Apostle writes in verse 4, verse 6, I'm sorry, Romans 5, 6, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. There are three expressions in a short passage that all say the same thing in slightly different ways. Verse 6, he said, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, he said, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 10 says, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. So we see that the mass of humanity, all-inclusive, and that, and that does include the elect, chosen, predestinated family of God from within that mass of humanity, all alike are ungodly sinners, and enemies of God by nature. Uh, born in this world as sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, as it's been expressed, as descendants of our first parents and their rebellion against God, and through our own rebellion and self-centeredness that is revealed even in uh, the youngest of human beings from a very early age, we manifest that we are interested in ourselves rather than God. And, and far from uh, what's taught in many churches today, God sort of setting up a some sort of minimum threshold and saying, okay, if you can achieve this, then my love will become effectual toward you. Then my love will make a difference in your life. 
this passage, among many others, shows us clearly that God is the initiator. God is the moving force. God is the first mover, as some old theologians in the Middle, Middle Ages described it. He is the one who reaches out to those who are ungodly, and sinners, and enemies, and loves them so fully and so powerfully that it transforms them from his enemies to his friends. So the unconditionality of God's love is, is evident from Scripture, that meaning that God is not waiting for us to meet certain preconditions so that his love will become effectual in our behalf. Now, many people teach a universal love of God in spite of that. They say, well, God is not going to save the whole human race from the consequences of their sins, but he still loves them all. But that love doesn't actually achieve anything for them until they achieve something for him, until they accept him or you know, walk the aisle or pray the sinner's prayer or mail their card into the televangelist uh, who's preaching on television. Uh, whatever the condition is set forth, and it's interesting, even in my short lifetime, I've seen those conditions evolve. Uh, it used to be a big deal to have to walk down to the front and, and uh, kneel at the, the sinner's uh, bench, and bench of penitence, and, and make a, a public profession. Then that sort of became um, less and less effective. Then people started saying, just close your hands, close your eyes, and raise your hands, and, and we'll pray our prayer over you, and you've met the condition. If you repeat this prayer after me, then you have satisfied God's conditions, and now his love becomes effective on your behalf. But you see, the flaw in that depiction of the love of God is that it makes God's love very weak. His love is waiting for us to do something before it becomes effective. And if we don't do whatever that condition is, whatever that denomination or church or minister prescribes that condition to be, if we don't fulfill that condition, God's love is nothing more than a good feeling that accomplishes nothing. He has good feelings towards us as he condemns us to hell. But God's love, according to the scriptures, is not only unconditional, it is also effectual. It does make a difference. It does have an impact. One of the most famous passages of all scripture, John chapter 3, where we read about God's love for the world, verse 3, John 3, 16, He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In the same context, earlier in this uh, discussion with Nicodemus, Jesus describes the effects of the love of God on a man's heart. He says, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He must be born again, verse 7. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and now here's the sound thereof, the same spot thou whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So we see, just like we can see the effects of the wind and the trees, literally the, the imagery he uses here in the 8th verse, you, you, the wind is invisible, the Spirit of God is invisible, but the wind has distinct and notable effects when it operates. And it operates according to its own will, so to speak. But the wind doesn't literally have a mind of its own, but it seems to be completely beyond the control of any, any sort of uh, you know, human agency or anything like that that we can see. We can't attribute the wind to some direct cause that we can trace and, and govern. The wind moves on its own, and it has irresistible effects on its own. So the Spirit of God moves, in one sense, invisibly, but in another sense, very visibly, because even though you can't see the Spirit, you can discern the effects of the work of the Spirit of God in your heart and in the lives of others around you. It moves just as irresistibly, even more irresistibly than the wind, 
and just and effectual. So God's love is a love that brings about a desired effect, a desired conclusion, a desired result. All the way back in the Old Testament prophet of prophecy of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, Jehovah famously said, or uh, Jeremiah famously said of Jehovah, the Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. So this shows that God's love is everlasting as well, and it also shows that it's effectual. He loves everlastingly, and his love has a result of drawing his children to himself. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. In Romans chapter 8, we also see one of the effects of the love of God displayed. Um, he says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, verse 14, they are the sons of God. For you've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So the love of God works effectually to bring the Spirit of God to his children, and then through that Spirit, God's children cry out to him as young children. Um, that's what the expression, Abba, Father, indicates. A childlike expression of trust and faith and confidence in our Heavenly Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And this is all traced in Scripture to the root cause of God's unilateral, unconditional, everlasting love. In fact, in the same passage here in Romans chapter 8, we come down to verse 28, where we read, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So we might say, just taking that verse alone, oh, there's a condition there that says I must love God in order for him to be working on my behalf. But then verse 29 takes us behind the scenes and shows us the moving cause of our love for him, because he says in verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, and foreknow is not merely uh, mental knowledge about something in advance. That word is a word that is consistently used in Scripture to describe a purposeful setting of one's love on another. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So we see the cause of God's eternal foreknowledge or loving his children from before the foundation of the world. And we see the effect is this predestination leads to his children's being conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And there are still further effects. He says, moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called. Everyone whom God loved, he predestinated. Everyone whom God predestinated, he called. And whom he called, then he also justified. Every single one that God calls, he also Justified, which is at odds with much teaching in the uh, realm of Christianity today. He says, God loves universally, but he only justifies you after you've met some conditions. The scripture says, everyone that God loves, he predestinated, everyone he predestinated, he called, everyone he called, then he also justified, and finally, whom he justified, then he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? Is God before us? Who can be against us? In fact, in the uh, last question of this passage here, Paul is developing this theme of salvation by God's sovereign grace. He says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There are many things that can separate human love that can come in as a barrier and lead to uh, even a you know, covenant husband and wife to break their vows or disannul them or separate from each other. 
and say, well, I thought I loved you at one time, or I did love you at one time, but I don't love you anymore. The Word of God tells us that there's nothing that can separate the child of God from the love of Christ. And then he goes through an exhaustive list covering every adversity we can experience in life, even the good things of life, the, the good, the bad, the ugly, none of it, he says, can separate us from the love of God through Christ, because he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors to him that loves us. So verse 39 concludes, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of my favorite um, passages about the effectualness of God's love is one that's actually so simple it's almost often overlooked. But back in 1 John chapter 4, 1 John 4, 19, we read, we love him because he first loved us. Now, people, people who don't even believe in the, the irresistible effectualness of God's love quote this verse, and it gives them a good feeling, and they say, yes, I, we love him because he first loved us. He loved, he loved us, and then he established some conditions, and then we met those conditions, and now we love him as a result of, of the invitation of his love. It was not effectual, it was just a proposal. But if you look at that verse carefully, again, it, it says much more than that. The word because is in there. And inside the word because is the word cause. So what he's saying is there's a cause and an effect here. He loved us, and that was the moving cause that drew us to love him. We love him because he first loved us. And then as John further develops in the same epistle, that love means something. It means that we want to follow him in obedience. It means that we want to love his children. Uh, whosoever, whoever loves him that begat, for John 5, 1, everyone that loves him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. We love his children because we love him. So there's a moving cause, the love of God, and there's an irresistible effect of the responding love of his children toward him. So we see that God's love is unconditional, and we see that it is effectual. And we've already alluded to from Jeremiah 31.3, his love is everlasting, from everlasting to everlasting, even as the nature of God himself is. And there's a, a multitude of passages supporting this point, and let's just turn to a couple of verses in the psalm. Psalm 90, the second verse, says, Before the mountains were brought forth, forever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So that establishes the uh, unchanging, eternal nature of God himself. And then a few pages over in the 103rd Psalm, in the 17th verse of that Psalm, we read a very similar expression. It says, The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children. So not only is God's very character everlasting, from everlasting to everlasting, not only is his character, his being eternal, but his love, as characterized as his mercy, is likewise everlasting. It's an eternal principle that is uh, bound up in the very nature of God himself. And the fourth characteristic I want to look at, we see that God's love is unconditional, God's love is sexual, God's love is everlasting. But an additional characteristic I'd like to look at is God's love is personal. Now, how many of you have heard somebody say, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Have you ever heard anybody say that? Have you ever heard anybody say, have you accepted Adam as your personal sinner? Anybody ever asked that? 
No, we didn't ask to be included in Adam. We were genetically and legally included in Adam. And so he is my personal sinner. And because of Adam's sin, Romans clearly tells us, by one man's sin entered the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Likewise, just as I didn't choose Adam to be my personal sinner, nor did I choose Christ to be my personal Savior. But I do believe in the principle of a personal Savior, because God's Word clearly teaches that. The difference is, I didn't make Him my personal Savior. He made Himself my personal Savior. And, and this, the, the personality, the individuality of Christ's love as He sets it upon His children effectually and brings it out between in their lives is, is uh, revealed again throughout the scripture. A couple of references in the New Testament. Luke chapter 4. Jesus is speaking here to his congregation and he says in Luke chapter 4, verse 25, I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, city of Sidon, and unto a woman that was a widow. Another example, verse 27. And many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, saving Naaman, the Syrian. Well, the next verse says that people listening in the synagogue became very angry when Jesus said this. They were angry because they were folks in the Jewish leadership that felt that they were in a place of privilege and that they had some sort of claim upon the love of God simply by the national lineage. And both of the examples that Jesus gives them here, a woman of the city of Sidon and Naaman from the nation of Syria, both of these people were notable Gentiles. These were not Jews at all. And so God had personally, individually set his love upon these people and brought his love to bear in their lives in a way that made a powerful and lasting difference. Another of my favorite examples of this is in excuse me. John, the fifth chapter, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, where at the pool of Bethesda, there's a multitude of people having all kinds of infirmities that are lying beside this pool, waiting for an angel to stir the waters so that they can receive a blessing of healing from those troubled waters. And Jesus, out of that entire multitude, goes to one man. He goes to a certain man, verse 5 says, who was there who had an infirmity for 30 and 8 years. And when Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? And the infinite man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, I take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed and walked. And the same day was sad. So out of the multitude that were there seeking a blessing of healing, Jesus goes, to this one individual, I'm not saying he's only one, because his entire ministry is characterized by this one here and that one there and another one over in the next city, but my point is that his, his, the, the work of his love was very individual and personal and specific. In other words, he didn't just walk into a city and you know throw some kind of magic spell up over the city and suddenly everybody in the city was healed or everybody in the city became lovers of Christ. No, he went individual and personally to each of these people, and in fact, that's exactly what the prophets and angels had said he would do, because you remember in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, speaking to Joseph, uh, the angel said, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, because what, Ivan? 
They shall call his name Jesus, because he shall save his people. Yes. He shall save who? His people. It's a specific love. It's a love of purpose and individuality. It's a love that is truly personal and deepest and most meaningful sense of it. And then again, in John chapter 10, the famous shepherd and sheep passage, he specifically says that he will come to his sheep. The good shepherd gives his life to the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep, and am known of mine. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. So the Lord Jesus Christ throughout his life, and especially his death, burial, and resurrection, had in mind the specific people whom he had determined from before the foundation of the world to love with an everlasting love. So we see then that God's love through Christ is unconditional, it's effectual, it's everlasting, and it is personal in the most meaningful sense. I would rather be the recipient of a love that is particular, but is also powerful enough to get the work done, than the popular gospel of the day, which says God's love is so broadly universal that it covers every man, woman, and child that ever lived, but it doesn't actually accomplish one single thing in their behalf. So it is all dependent upon the paragraph to respond. We're like the man who's the fool of Bethesda. If it was up to us to respond, we'd be saying, Lord, I'm still lying, you're a cripple, or I'm still lying, you're dead, because I'm completely incapacitated and unable to meet even the slightest of spiritual conditions. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It cannot be subject to the law. It is not and cannot be subject to the law of God. And what I want to um, leave this, uh, all this description about the, those, the wonderful characteristics of the love of God, I want to leave these to a, an exhortation to the congregation here at Gadsden, turning to the second to last book of the Bible, Jude, right before Revelation. To read a couple of interesting expressions here that the Holy Spirit gives us in relation to the love of God. Let's turn to Jude, verse 20. He says, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, some of our friends out there in the religious world would say, see, there you go, that proves it's up to you to get into the love of God and stay in the love of God. And if you fail to meet some conditions, you'll fall out of the love of God. And just like the world falls into love and out of love, God will fall out of love with you. But that's a misunderstanding of what the verse is saying. He's not saying keep yourselves inside that love. He's saying because of that love, keep yourselves, maintain yourself, protect your heart, guide your life, order your life according to the principles of God's love. If you were on the battlefield and the general said, stand firm in the, in the cause of America, you wouldn't think that you're standing firm is what leads to it being the cause of America. You're thinking the cause of America is what leads you to stand firm on the battlefield. Well, here, in a similar fashion, he's saying the cause of the love of God, in view of the love of God, you can, and God calls you to keep yourselves. Build up yourself in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and keeping yourself to do all this in the love of God. And in fact, if you just keep reading the passage itself, uh, make very clear who actually has the power to, to keep us, preserve us inside the love of God. Because in just a couple of more verses, he says, verse 24, 
Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. So there's only one who is able to keep us from falling, and that is God himself. And we pray to him, we depend upon him, we rely upon him to keep us in that love that is from all eternity. And we ourselves are charged by him to maintain our lives, to keep ourselves because of that love, in the love of God. So those are a few thoughts, certainly not exhaustive, certainly not all the qualities of God's love, when I describe here this afternoon, but I welcome any comment or input or question regarding these attributes of God's love, unconditional, effectual, everlasting, and personal, and calls us to keep ourselves in love.